This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Knowledge, advice, and insight into starting, building, and managing a small business. Here are your hosts, Lauren Feldman and Celeste Corrado. Welcome to Mind Your Business here on SiriusXM's Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Lauren Feldman, Senior Editor of Entrepreneurship at Forbes, and I'm here with my co-host, Celeste Corrado, Director of the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Hi, Celeste. Hey, Lauren. How are you? I'm great. Great to see you. (laughs) Good to see you, too. How are things at the center? Oh, they're crazy. Yeah, we're wrapping up the semester and planning for the next one, and it just never stops. It's all good, though. All good. <laughs> Glad to hear it. You, yeah. brought a, you brought along a friend today. I did. Why don't you introduce him? Yeah, it's Joe Witt, and he's the executive director of Bunker Labs in Philadelphia. And uh, we're actually the center. Our center works with him on a couple of projects, and we've had him in. You know, I think we had him once on the show in February, and he was phenomenal. And so we're really happy to have him again this week. Also, too, it's a special week. It's uh, Veterans Day is November 11th, right? Correct. Yep. And um, we're actually very excited to have him on here. Welcome, Joe. It's an honor to be here again. I had such a great time. I, I was uh, thrilled to get that email to ask me back again. So glad I could be with you You guys. can come back anytime you want, Joe. Absolutely. Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We'll rope you into this anytime. That's right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Bunker Labs? Sure, sure. So um, it was started in 2014 out of Chicago. Our CEO, Todd Connor, a uh, naval veteran, recognized that there's transition out of the military is tough, right? Um, where anytime we have change and everybody's gone through change, whether it's career change or life change, it's, uh, it can be a little bit unnerving. But when you go out of the military, you're accustomed to, hey, put the same thing on every day, the same uniform. You know where your paycheck's coming from. You know what your job is. And suddenly there's this big unknown world out there, and you don't know where you're going to land. And so certainly a lot of um, people from the military have great business ideas, but they may not have the network to start, um, where to connect, where do I get going, and it can be daunting. So some of the data that we pulled showed that— It's hard for anybody to start a business, right? (laughs) That's hard enough. That's correct. And then maybe somebody who's not connected or doesn't know where to go can be even scarier. So in World War II, the data showed that 49% 49% of veterans returning started their own business. That number that we pulled a couple of years ago was around 5%. So the concept is how can we build a safe environment for them where we can help them get educated on the fundamentals of starting a business, connect them with their community and the media and potential um, uh, investors or partners or customers, um, and sometimes just inspire people to say, hey, listen, you do have a special unique set of skills that you may not even realize, and go for it. Um, and here's what you need to know. Uh, when you do that. So Bunker Labs, you know, Philadelphia, we, we just wrapped up uh, our second year here. And um, I've just been honored to, to work with a lot of amazing men and women who are, who are taking the courage to start their business. So you, Bunker, I'm sorry, no, no. Bunker Go Labs ahead. Philadelphia is part of a larger organization right. with um, uh, that has offices in a bunch of cities around the country. Yeah, we're in 16 cities now. Every time we turn around, there's another one it's being growing. added. Yeah. So yeah, we're, we, we've grown pretty significantly. And yeah. um, I think after um, our second year, uh, just to give you a quick update from last time we were here, we've had 20 companies come through our cohort. Probably about 500 veterans or veteran spouses have gone through all our programs in the last two years. So we've been we've been busy. But of the 20 companies that have come through, I'd say 75% are still operational. Uh, they've raised 
close to $10 million in capital, projecting to do $8 million in revenue, and have hired uh, more than 150 people, and 25% of them are veteran and veteran spouses. So what's interesting is you see the economic impact that with a little bit of guidance, a um, couple key connections that uh, great leaders are able to achieve with just that little bit of support. Yeah, I, I wanted to mention this earlier. Was So I'm the daughter of a veteran, and there that transition from the military to the private sector, as you were alluding to, really pretty harsh. And mm-hmm. I wondered if anything, is there any coaching inside the military before they get out? Or are you in? I mean, and if you are, then it, you're providing such a great service. So there is. Uh, they have uh, transition assistance programs. And it, two things often happen in those. One, one, sometimes you get somebody who's been around the service for a very long time. And in all honesty, sometimes their, their um, expertise isn't really in what they're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. So they may not have had those fresh perspectives. Yes. Um, two, oftentimes we pay attention when we need to pay attention. So a lot of times people are transitioning and, man, this is taking up an hour of my gym time or an hour where I'd rather be doing something else. And people don't always think what may happen and pay attention to those programs. Um, so it's it's on both sides. Sometimes the content could be okay. stronger. Sometimes the the um, uh, the service member needs to to plan for their future a little bit better. Until you know, sometimes we have problems, then we have to solve those problems. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It was a harsh transition yep. from what I remember. Yeah. Yeah. No, my grandfather actually was a Wharton graduate, and um, he struggled big time. Like it just he, his personality was he, that he was uh, a veteran as well. He, oh yeah, he was World War II. Um, and uh, if you've ever seen the Great Santini with Robert Duvall back in the day, it was kind of his personality. And uh, he always did really well on his on his officer evaluation reports. But tact wasn't his greatest strength. So smart guy, <laughs> but understanding that somebody just because you told somebody to do it doesn't mean that they're going to listen. So um, he ended up in Honduras for the, his final days of his life. And my other grandfather just went straight to retirement. Like, it was no problem for him. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. As yeah. usual today, we're uh, taking your calls throughout the show. If you have any questions about your business, especially if you're a veteran, or if there's something you've been struggling with that you'd like to kick around, call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. 942 7866 Yeah, so, so I had one more question for you. You know, So we're, we're talking about the changes from the last time we talked with you. And Lauren had mentioned, you know, you're, it's growing. You're in a lot more cities. The other thing was what I think is very interesting is the makeup of the companies that are in your cohorts. You mentioned now you have two, and you're at the tail end of the 2017 cohort. Mm-hmm. And they're fascinating. I, I wondered if, you know, I know we have to be careful on my side to talk about them and because we're, you know, we're covered under, you know, privacy, and we, we, we said we wouldn't talk about them. But are there some that you can talk about? Because they're fascinating. Sure. So uh, one company in our, our last cohort, uh, Neuroflow, uh, yeah. part of Wharton. I don't know if you guys know Chris Malero and, and um, Adam, who, who are um, Penn and Wharton graduates, and he was a West Point graduate. And what he saw coming back from deployment is that there people were dealing with PTSD. Um, and so the challenge with any sort of stress or depression or PTSD is like, how do you measure that? Like historically, you ask somebody, how are you yeah. feeling? And I know when I came back from Iraq, it's like, I'm fine. Let's go do what I need to do. That's not really the best source. And other than that, it's like a very invasive EEG process. Um, and also you've got the other side, the person who's listening, which again is um, subjective. So 
they've developed a software that can uh, you know hook up to just about any various hardwares that can help measure people's stress levels. Um, they've raised uh, more than a million dollars. Uh, we're part of our last cohort and are just um, in the process of getting a deal done with the VA and have a deal done with West Point. So they're gaining a lot of traction, oh, wow. uh, which is really exciting. And, and you see his military leadership kick in and is just well-respected by all the different scientists and engineers around him. But he's an amazing leader and just works tirelessly. Is that a medical device that has to be regulated by the FDA and get all? Maybe. Okay. I think there's a portion of it that could be regulated by the FDA um, if it's being put in medical systems. The other part, which is if you're just uh, part of West Point and you want to test your students, I think may not need to be. So I think those are some of the product market fit challenges that Chris and his team are trying to determine um, and work both angles as they can. But that's part of startups, right? Trying to figure things sure. out as you go. Right. How far along were they when they came to you? I'm curious. And, and, and was their situation typical of uh, the people you see? I wouldn't, I mean, I don't know if there's anything called typical these days anymore. <laughs> no, I think probably they, not. <laughs> they, they had, a, I think, a solid prototype. They had won some um, awards. He presents extremely well and had gotten some minor funding, 10 grand here, 10 grand there. Most of them were still in school. So the pressure was on when a lot of them graduate, which is now you got bills to pay, right? Um, so now they've developed a usable product. I think since they started, um, they've gotten a couple deals closed. They've raised more than a million dollars since then. So they, they've made significant strides in the last eight, nine months. And just every time um, you know, I see Chris, they're doing something else. Pretty cool. Yeah, just, just to refresh, you know, um, every us too, you know, and the last time we talked to you, when they're coming into your, you know, into the incubator program, I um, forgot what it's called. What What is that? Launch Labs. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So Launch Labs, um, when they're coming in, do you have any criteria you're looking for? You know, so this one sounded like an easy one to That's say, right. you know, this one looks great. That's right. But do you have a criteria or do you open the door for everyone? Like we have to. That's, that's a great question. So we have a lot of different programs. For Launch Labs, what we look for are some level of humility, people who are there to learn and contribute. Um, the ability to lead and grow a business. And one criteria we look for is, are we comfortable making introductions on their behalf? Right? So the key, Hmm. when you're connected and know people, that's when you can help somebody out, whether it's the press, whether it's a potential investor, whether it's a potential customer, whether it's a potential um, vendor. So when you can make introductions and expand their network significantly overnight with our network can can have a big impact. But ultimately, we want to make sure that they're going to represent themselves, Bunker Labs, veterans, and maybe the educational institute, they come out of extremely well, and that's how they're, they're going to um, be able to gain traction. But as far as the type of business that they represent, we really don't care, to be honest with you, as long as there's some level of ambition. Um, there's actually one guy, I've been begging him to be part of our cohort last year and hopefully this year, which has a dog training business. And Dave was in the Army. Dave Shade came back, dealt with some, some challenges, and... Um, found a dog and really helped him and, and um, his stress levels and fell in love with dog training and got certified and has grown his business from 35000 to, I think, more than 100000 this year and is one of the, the lead trainers, and he can't keep up with the demand. So the opportunity I want to help him is how can we scale that business, right? And what are some of the scalable opportunities? And he's a super smart guy um, and, and has figured a lot of things out on his own, but I'd love to just tell his story um, to the community and nationally and develop a great national brand. Yeah, they, they're great stories, and we see them in our center, too. And I, I hope you do get those stories out, and That's this right. is one way to do that. Yeah. Um, so we just talked about two very different businesses. Um, are there some common traits between the owners 
of those businesses that make them, you know, you sit there and say they're going to succeed, you know? Absolutely. I think what I see is uh, humility. Like they go to learn. Um, Very team oriented. So uh, I've been to some other events and, you know, inherently people talk about all the great things they're doing and they've done. And I see on the other side, people are thirsty for knowledge and to learn and very much team focused and mission oriented. Hey, here's my objective. Um, they're not worried about the title on their business card. They're worried about building a successful company. I see a sense of responsibility to their team members if they have team members or certainly to their family. They're um, focused on building great businesses. Um, I also see, and I think one of our last cohort uh, members, Dan Tobin, who's a phenomenal entrepreneur, talked about veterans have the ability to manage uh, and make decisions like in high-risk situations, whereas an entrepreneur, it's all risk, but you have to make decisions. And oftentimes we can get paralyzed when we're faced with risk and uh, and not make any decisions at all, which is the worst thing you can do. Whereas if veterans being comfortable in that situation, hey, I have to analyze what the circumstances are, make a decision and go. And then we'll make changes or pivot uh, along the way. Well, can we dive into that one more, one more, a little deeper? Yeah. So... So at one level, you know, they're really good at making those decisions and analyzing. So at least that's what I heard. Mm-hmm. The flip side of it, though, is I, I like to dig into this risk thing because, you know, we see that all the time in our center, too, is that these are high-risk businesses. Mm-hmm. And I know uh, the military is not. They're risk-averse. Right. So do you have to train them up on sort of relaxing that sort of – you know, that doesn't have to be perfect kind of thing? Or or do some of them come in? I mean, how does that work? It, it, we often talk about a garrison mentality, which is when you're in the continental U.S., which is risk averse. But when you're in Afghanistan or Iraq, they can assure you there's risk, right? And you have to make decisions there. So we encourage them to take more of a battlefield mentality as an entrepreneur. Oh, interesting. Which is you, you will face risk. And you have to make decisions. Now, two interesting stories. We've got two guys on our board who are veterans. John New, who is the CEO at uh, The Hub, now at Workshop Mercantile, and Mike Mayer, who's the CEO at Hauser. Both of them put tens of thousands of dollars on their credit card and emptied their bank accounts to start their business. We don't usually recommend that, right? Um, right. And say it's not always the best idea. <laughs> Pretty but they, risky. <laughs> very risky. But they analyzed the business opportunity and said, they believed in it. They had a plan. They needed the funding. Felt like it was probably faster to do it that way rather than chase dollars down. And maybe they couldn't raise capital anyway. Sometimes you just can't. Um, and now they they have reaped significant rewards as a result. So that one paid off. Do you find uh, kind of the converse of what Celeste just said? Are, do you work with entrepreneurs who are a little bit too eager to to take risks, perhaps in part because of their background? Um, we have run into an individual who wanted to mortgage or sell his house in order to invest in a um, tech platform for um, a pretty good business idea. He wanted to almost have a um, an eBay for cool antique items, um, you know, and be very focused on that market. But we really encouraged him. He said, before you go down that path, you need to gain some traction first. You need to put it on Facebook. That platform already exists. See if there's a market. Um, David Bookspan, the founder of DreamIt, comes in and talks to our cohort. He says, sell it before you build it, right? Go out, bring a PowerPoint, get some nice prototypes on there. Go to people who would potentially buy it and say, hey, what do you think? What would you pay for it? And if you've seen interest and say, I would absolutely have it, great, if I build it, or could you be a potential customer? And if you get enough yeses, you know you're on to something. If you get a lot of no's or hems and haws and maybe you need to go back to the drawing board, 
because a lot of people get fall in love with their idea. We tell people don't fall in love with your baby. You know, like you have to. Sometimes you might have to call your your baby business might be a little bit ugly, and you got to be self aware and, and and humble in those situations. You're listening to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm here with my co-host Celeste Corrado of the Warren Small Business Development Center, and we're taking your calls with our special guest Joe Witt of Bunker Labs. If you have a question about your business, if you're struggling with something, call us. The number is one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So, so what happened in that situation that you were describing? I think he ended up getting a job. <laughs> yes, which in some which cases, sometimes is the right answer. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. So. Um, that's part of our triage as an organization too, which is to shoot straight with people. Hey, listen, this is going to be really hard. This is what you need to do. You need to raise capital. So we have other programs earlier stage for earlier stage um, veterans who maybe are recently transitioned. And we shoot straight, say, hey, this is the opportunity. These are the right reasons why you would want to start a business. You want to take another journey. You want to learn. You're going to learn things you've never imagined. You're going to be stretched. You meet great people. But don't do it because you're going to be a millionaire and you can set your own hours throughout the day. Like you will be a... Um, a slave to your business for quite some time, and you don't know what that outcome is going to be. Um, yeah, I'm I'm a bit intrigued by that last story. Is do do you know what it was about him that didn't want to try? You know, to minimize risk. I mean, that's a risk. You know, minimization thing. Sure. To try this out on Facebook, and I, you know, what. What was it? Why didn't he want to? I mean, the, to me, that that's. Like, I don't know. I ran into interesting. A, a, a previous year too, where we, you know, somebody had a business idea and we liked it, but then there was another one and another one and another one, and we're like, hey, listen, there's only one of you. You can't have a digital platform. You can't teach leadership training. You can't do these. You need to pick one. This is the one we think is best and has uh, is the most unique and can market and generate revenue. Go for it. I think it's just person, different personalities. It's, yeah, yeah. I, you know it's interesting because we, uh, yeah, we see that in the center too. And in fact, one in particular was a technology platform, and he, he wanted to like and raise all this money to sort of build something new. And there was some applications he could just modify. Right. And the same thing, this unwillingness to sort of look at, uh, you know, what they call they call it MVP, the minimal right. viable product. Yeah. And you know, hey, just test it out with some. You know, you could kind of. You know, cut and paste and, right. you know, cobble it together. But I know it's going to work. I don't have right. to test it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. Let's take a phone call. Ed in Canada, welcome to Mind Your Business. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me on, and I appreciate what you guys are doing today. I Thank you. I have an existing business right now, and uh, we're, we're on the Internet. We have uh, multiple retail stores. But what I would like to find out, if there's a clear way to be able to get into market our products in China without having to maybe... Uh, you know, get hung up in that whole rigmarole and, and, and red tape. I know it's, pardon the play on words, red tape, but is there any simple way to get, or will there be a simple way in the near near future to be able to market our goods there? Do either of you have any experience you know, with that? I don't have experience with it, but one thought was, is there, without knowing much about what it is you're selling, is there vendors or partners you could partner with that would get you into that market somehow, or at least be able to piggyback onto what they're doing and at least for that market, you know, come to an agreement for how you would arrange um, those business deals? Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. And in our case, we have talked to a number of people, of course, there's a language barrier because we don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese. But basically, um, what we're looking to do is try to have a, 
a platform of sorts. Um, I know that there's uh, Alibaba, which is trying to offer offshoots of it. It's a little ambiguous as to understand the clarity of how to get that initiated. Um, and I know there's been several business leaders and politicians trying to bridge the gap, but it seems still a little bit ambiguous at the moment. But I'm just trying to see if there's anybody that might have a connection with, with maybe some form of uh, a liaison that would be able to interface North American business, because it seems obviously in trade it's pretty one-sided. We're, we're buying all their goods, and uh, you know they're not necessarily buying a lot of ours, and it'd be great to access that, that uh, middle-scale middle market for, the, for North America. Would you mind sharing what, what your product is? Yes, we sell uh, guitars. We sell a lot of vintage guitars. We started selling to rock stars way back in the day. Hmm. And uh, we, we have evolved into selling new guitars, of which we you know have a great variety of. And that culture is starting to develop. I think they're looking at the Japanese model of uh, people uh, looking at the American model of rock and roll and so on in Japan. And they're kind of emulating that in some ways there. But even that it's not really progressed into sort of a full acceptance of North American culture, music, et cetera, yet, um, I think there's a seed that's growing there. I just love to tap into it because even with the minimal number of people that are over there that are interested, it still represents probably hundreds of millions of dollars the way it sits. Do you guys feel that that you've saturated the market or done what you can in Canada and North America before you look look, uh, look west? We've saturated the market, and, and not, we haven't saturated the market. But I would say that we've basically we could we could develop more bricks and mortar stores in Canada because convenience is, is uh, a question, and it's quite interesting because there's a lot of atrophication with uh, bricks and mortar stores of the older guard that haven't necessarily gone on and embraced the internet and marketing the internet. They're, and some of the people that do have it are kind of half baked with it, and they haven't really embraced it. So as a result, a lot of people are falling off the vine, which is inadvertently created a bigger market for us in a bricks-and-mortar presentation for ease. So there's an element of being a hybrid between online and bricks-and-mortar for us, which we could expand on. But the more rapid approach with, say, a market that, say, areas that are developing like China and or to be able to gather up the people of the same interest in the world, the Internet, of course, is the fastest means in which to do that. Mm-hmm. We've been doubling our sales every year. That's great. And we don't even have a line of credit which is yet another frustration. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you know how the banks can be. <laughs> Even though we've been around for 30 years, it's incredible that uh, we, we have operated on our own money, you know. I, I'm a little, I'm going to just ask some naive, naive questions. So have you tried to sell it on Amazon? I mean, I, I think of all the products we buy from China so almost seamless, seamlessly. I, I got to believe that there's a team of people that would help you sort of break down those barriers and, you know, to Joe's point, build up the demand here in the in this country and with that product so that you get buyers from all over the world. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we do have buyers all over the world. We have a really great web presence. I mean, there's there's many different means in which, you know, uh, we could sort of market from a, from a digital standpoint. I guess our biggest frustration is we know how big the market is in China, which mm-hmm. is my initial, you know, sort of... Uh, idea to, to ask you that question but to expand in other countries isn't isn't it's fairly it's fairly cookie cutter in terms mm-hmm. of our approach because we do ship worldwide now which is great uh we know what we need to do to be able to enhance that but the big question is i mean when you've got such a wealth of population there's such a trade imbalance with uh with china being uh suppliers to the world of everything 
uh, it it makes it uh, in order to equalize some of that and to see some extraordinary growth. Although we've been doubling our sales, and that's great. I don't want to seem uh, ungrateful for the fact that we're able to uh, done that, and especially a market where a lot of the people are shrinking and or falling off the vine. We we've been fortunate, but um, we're just looking to do the best we can and expand our markets all the time. I guess that's the challenge. You know, it's like <laughs> we're in this thing. We want to keep rolling. <laughs> we don't want. There are no plateaus. You know. Ed, is your interest in China based primarily just on the incredible size of the country, or do you have some reason to think that there's real interest and a real potential market there for guitars? I think both things. One is they're a huge manufacturer of instruments. They replicate instruments that are made in America. So there's that from a strict supply standpoint. Socioeconomically, they haven't necessarily, and culturally, if you will, haven't integrated fully with the demand they even make in their own country. Like they couldn't, uh, let's just put it this way, obviously they can supply their own country with instruments, but they're not of the caliber of American-made instruments that are bonafide sort of vintage instruments like your Fender and Gibson and Mm -hmm. Martin and so on guitars. Those are you know, incredibly great quality. They have a huge history, and uh, it's that's also woven into the fabric of music and culture in North America and in Europe and in various other parts of the free world. So culturally, uh, they will start to adapt, but, I mean, we have to get there sooner than later to be able to establish ourselves because, you know, you mentioned Amazon. Amazon's a very great and powerful company, but a lot of the time what will happen is people will get on to their uh, selling channel and it's they're all of a sudden a competitor where they're buying direct from some of the manufacturers, and it's a race to the bottoms, which is, you know, profitability needs to be there. We wouldn't be where we are now if we couldn't sort of find a fair balance in supply and profitability. And we put our money back into the company because we have no choice. It's not like we're we're buying fancy cars. We're putting our money back into inventory, which is our, which is our offering, of course. So variety, you know, really helps us to accelerate and to, to push on, you know. But we would really like, I mean, if there's any... Anything uh, that you folks have uh, for other businesses as well, I'm sure, they would like to get into that market. And uh, there has been uh, Chairman Ma over there who has uh, Alibaba, but it, it just seems it's not clear as to, you know, if, if it's not, there's a lot of smaller businesses that may not want to post a large amount of money. I think for medium corporations or larger corporations, you know, I think they have to post some kind of a bond with them of 200 to 500,000 USD which is substantial. So I had a couple of questions for you. Well, first of all, you asked uh, a couple of times for resources, and I don't have the exact name, but we could probably get it for you. Almost every city has sort of a export-import sort of um, relationship office that is supposed to do just what you talked about, help you figure out how you're supposed to export out to that country. So um, if you want, we can if you if you let us know what your email is or how we can reach you, we will try to get you that information. So that was the first question. The other one, one thing to think about, um, and one what, what I haven't heard here yet was segmentation of uh, who you're targeting. Um, at one moment, it sounded like it was the general sort of musician, you know, sort of um, the amateur. And at one moment, you mentioned that it's a higher end and it could be sort of the higher end musician. I I think that has to be really clear and who you're targeting on. That will tell you what platform and, you know, who you might be able to partner with to make that happen. So just a question out there for you is, so is this, you know, amateur or is it one step above? Or are you looking at sort of a higher priced, you know, instrument? Um, Because... 
like I said, then you're right. You know, if it is the higher price, then it wouldn't be an Amazon or, you know, the um, the platform that targets um, a general audience. Yeah, we sell guitars from $99 to virtually sky's the limit. I mean, I think the most expensive instrument we ever sold was $318,000 for a 1958 Gibson Les Paul, which back in the day was only worth about two ninety five. So some things have appreciated and they're of great value. It's uh, something that a lot of professional musicians covet because it has a certain quality and tonality, etc. So there are collectors. A lot of our, our customers are doctors, for instance, that are players, collectors that have the wherewithal in the high end. But at the entry level, we cater to every almost every brand um, at, at, at fairly um, gradual price points, like I say, from entry level right on up. So I see what you're saying about segmenting and maybe finding the various areas that might be more pertaining to, say, the high end versus low. Or yes, mid. yep. But uh, they have a mid-market. We're in Canada and the U.S. and the rest of the world. We're finding there is a mid-market, uh, but it's it's challenged. It's, it's representative of probably a lot of the economies these days. We have an extreme top end, an extreme low end, and, and kind of a bit of a gap in the middle, whereas in past years it was more gradual. Ed, thank you for your phone call. We really appreciate it. Uh, best of luck with your business. Uh, we'd love to hear back from you. Let us know uh, what you figure out. Uh, I have edited a number of stories about people who, as you suggested uh, at the beginning of your call, uh, specialize in trying to help entrepreneurs figure out the uh, the China market. If, if you want to hit me on Twitter, at L Feldman, I'd be happy uh, to send you a couple of articles uh, that, that we've published uh, about that. Uh, but thanks for your call. If you have a question about your business, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We need to take a break, uh, but we'll be right back with more from Joe Witt of Bunker Labs. Our producer, Michelle, is standing by, ready to take those phone calls. Again, it's 1-844-942-7866. You're listening to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman here with my co-host, Celeste Corrado. And this is Business Radio powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. You're listening to Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Here again, Lauren Feldman and Celeste Corrado. Welcome back to Mind Your Business, where we don't tell you how to run your business. The show is about ideas and strategies and conversations, and we want to have those conversations with you. I'm Lauren Feldman, Senior Editor of Entrepreneurship at Forbes, and I'm here with my co-host, Celeste Corrado, Director of the Wharton Small Business Development Center. And we're speaking with Joe Witte, who runs an accelerator for veteran entrepreneurs called Bunker Labs. If there's something you've been struggling with, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Joe, why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience? Uh, what was the transition like for you when you came back from Iraq? Sure. Well, my experience as an entrepreneur and in the military was, I'd say, different from most, and that I was a reservist. So my primary jobs were in the civilian market, uh, was worked at DoubleClick in the internet ad space and was part of the dot boom, more bust than boom for me. So mm-hmm. my transition into business started with, I'm living in Northern California and the market that I worked in, there were no jobs. So as with anything, sometimes it becomes a problem that needs to be solved. Well, I think I can do this. You know, I think I, I would rather be the, the last person to let go in a company rather than, you know, if there aren't any sales, one of the early people. So I started a company. So my transition challenges were, I started another company that provided um, online logo and web design search engine optimization services. We grew it, kind of gained some good traction. Then all of a sudden, you get the phone call that says, hey, you're going to be deployed to Iraq for a year. And um, try to put that down, try to find somebody 
uh, to, to manage that for you over the time period and then come back, had a brand new baby, um, house had been flooded, wow. and the business yeah. was struggling all at the same Again, time. Again, starting a, a yeah. business is hard enough, yeah. as yeah. we said before, but then have to go away for a year and <laughs> spend a year in Iraq. Spend a year in Iraq and then um, not not have a company, uh, or the company was struggling. Businesses, I mean, it, it seemed everything hit at once. So when I heard about this opportunity to help veterans um, who are going through those business challenges and starting businesses, like the, I got like how important it is to be there for somebody is, is, is crucial. Let's take a phone call. Jeff in Ohio, welcome to Mind Your Business. Uh, yes, I'm an accountant. I have an accounting service, Unitary Accounting Services. I was wondering if uh, Bunker Labs would um, collaborate with someone who is a non-veteran but who can provide a service that would be beneficial to some of the uh, entrepreneurs that are in, in, their, uh, in their network. That's a really interesting question, Joe. Sure. So, Jeff, thank you for, for checking in with us. So what we try to do is um, establish, and, and we are in 17 different cities. I think one of them is Columbus, Ohio, actually, is connect service professionals who oftentimes provide mentoring services um, to our, our, our veteran cohort. Um, and now what we're doing here in Philadelphia is we're going to establish uh, mentoring in a couple different ways, working with a uh, gentleman, John Ondick, out of the Wharton Small Business Development Center, who's a, a Navy veteran, having experienced veteran entrepreneurs, pairing them up with somebody who's coming up, right? So one-to-one, but also having subject matter experts like Jeff. So when somebody says, hey, I have a question about accounting or taxes, and those are one of those things that can be frustrating. I I didn't do so well in accounting in college. So to have Jeff, somebody I can call, be available to us who can answer some questions and make sure I'm on the right track and not get myself in hot water, um, which happens a lot of times with startup businesses where they think they're doing well financially, and suddenly a tax bill comes in and They've already spent that money. It could be a problem. So yeah, absolutely, um, having somebody with your background and expertise to provide that, that mentoring would, would be valuable um, and, and could make a lot of sense, Jeff. Does that help, Jeff? Yeah, it does. So how, how would, I, would I just contact the, um, the local office in Columbus? Sure. To go, to Bunker, to... go to BunkerLabs.org, and you'll see the different cities we're in. Drop down. You'll see the, the Columbus uh, chapter and send an email in there and let them know that I sent you. Thanks so much for your call, Jeff. You bet. Appreciate your call. Let's go to uh, Wallace in Tennessee. Welcome to Mind Your Business, Wallace. How are you guys? We're doing great. We're doing well. What's on your mind? Uh, well, I have an e-commerce built uh, business, uh, dryraceboard.com. Had it for about 15 years. And um, we did very, very, very well, at, you know, of course, in the beginning before you know, everybody kind of caught on, and uh, we were ranked uh, number one by Google for like eight years in a row, and then we bought the number one spot, right? So out of the four spots, we were um, number one. Uh, we're out of the four spots, we had two of the four spots, so our, basically our phone rang off the wall. And so business was great until... Uh, you're talk- when you our- say you're the number one, one of the four spots, are you, are you talking about uh, on Google search? Yeah, Google search, uh, the organic, we were number one. Gotcha. And uh, then we paid for the uh, uh, the first spot in uh, Google Ads. Gotcha. Google AdWords. So so basically, we, out of the top four, we had two. We were listed twice. And obviously, you know, the phone rang off the wall just because of, you know, we were just right there in front of everybody and looked like, you know, if Google thought we were good enough to be number one, then you know how that works with consumers. And so it worked great. But now, uh, the last couple of years, our 
manufacturer of the dry erase boards that we buy from, and we just drop ship, right? Um, they decided to go to Amazon and start selling their boards to Amazon. And in essence, what they've done is undercut all their distributors. And so uh, my personal business has just gone down to nothing where I don't even buy ads anymore. I mean, it's I, my business has gone down 90% wow. in two years. Uh, so it went from being a gold mine to being not worth a lot, you know, yep. uh, for a small business guy. So my my question is, what are your thoughts about Amazon, uh, you know, basically, you know, taking over just about everything and then convincing manufacturers to basically compete against their own uh, distributors? And, you know, and what, you know, I don't know what kind of deals they cut with them, uh, but I sell the same products on Amazon and compete against Amazon. But Amazon doesn't have to pay the 15% like I do because Amazon owns, owns Amazon. Joe, do you have any thoughts? Well, I've actually been in a similar situation, Wallace, where I was um, a partner in a logo design company and we were... You know, number two, number three in Google, and I loved Google, but I also hate Google because if we dropped to number four or five, we felt that bump in sales and just really had a hard time struggling to find what other way can we generate revenue. And eventually, um, there's another company that came up with a better business model, crowdsourcing, right? We were um, delivering um, logos online and, and had a platform. So we had to innovate. Um, and basically what we did is we shifted our business model, and it took us a year of pain, but we came back. The reality is that what's best for the consumer is going to be best. Like that's what's going to grow. So, um, I've been in your shoes. I think um, you know trying to find a solution is going to be tough um, because now you recognize who you're competing with. Um, whether there's a way that you can um, remarket, which is how can you provide value to the customer as a subject matter expert? Um, right now, it sounds like your product has been commoditized, and being in a commodity business, it really is difficult to differentiate yourself. Whether it's service or delivery time or a better product or something of that nature or, or, or you're, you're going to bring something in there so i don't know i really have the answer for you wallace other than i know and understand your pain um and, and there's options sometimes the option is to sell what you have or, or do something else um and, and kind of see where the market's going um celeste i don't know if you have some ideas too yeah you, i have a sort of different perspective on things very similar but similar to joe and that is that innovation is the key i mean it, it doesn't really matter what we think about Amazon because it's here today and it's just going to continue to grow. And, and to Joe's point, it's commoditized. And so it, it forces people to continue to innovate. So I think the only recommendation I can give to you is because of the way you've sold, you may be closer to your customers than you realize. And I think going back to them and saying, hey, trying to catch that next wave, how are they, you know, What's the next wave of writing on eraser boards? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But what, where are they going next? And try to catch that next wave of innovation because I think that's what Amazon's making us do is innovate quicker and faster because of what they're doing to productize everything. So I, I would say to you, you know, maybe it's it's hard right now to catch up, right? Because it was hard to see this trend coming, but the trend's there now, and now it's a question of can you catch the next wave? And I think the closest way and quickest way to do that is go talk to your customers. 
find out, you know, what, where's the gap? Where's the pain point? What's not being offered by Amazon right now? I, th- I think that's a good point, which is what you do have is a database of customers. And hopefully you've developed a good relationship with them. And I don't know what's next after the whiteboard, if it's something that's digital or on screen or virtual or something of that nature. But, you know, you're going to have to take some 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 good guesses and go back to them and, and bring innovation. Wallace, do you have uh, an answer to uh, the, the question that Celeste was sort of uh, asking there? Do you do you have an argument that you can make for why someone should buy your board uh, as opposed to spending less for one of the knockoffs? No. I think no, that there, no. there's the issue then. It's it's not about Amazon. It's about that. Well, you it, know, I have this well, crazy... Well, it is about Amazon. It is about Amazon. Let me, let me, let me explain this part. You, you think about this. Um, so I'm advertising on, on uh, Google. I'm number one. Okay, so they go to my site. And this is what's happened. I mean, real life experience. So they come. They come to my site. They find what they want. They see that model number, right? Uh, and it's a brand name because that's all that's really out there are brand names. Uh, but I mean, even the ones that aren't are are, are like a, a cheap import, and they buy those too. That's fine. I sell. I started selling some of those, but it's still about basically about that model number so what the customer does and you do the same everybody does this you go on there you find what you want then you take that model number and you search that model number okay well that model number is going to come up in amazon so you go to amazon and then amazon it's a bidding war everybody's all the distributors in there all the uh wholesale houses everybody is in there okay i i'm in there used to be in there uh, but you can't win that game either. See, so basically, I spend. I was spending a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars a day on advertising. Okay, and which was fine because we used to do eight to ten thousand a day. So that's fine. And we, but uh, as as Amazon, when once Amazon really came in and started selling the same products from that manufacturer and all manufacturers actually uh most all manufacturers but this particular one is is the largest okay and so basically i am paying for that manufacturer's uh advertising on google okay so that's in essence that's what's going on so i went in and i changed all my model numbers okay so and that helped but the bottom line is, is Amazon is still ranked number one under Google for dry erase boards. Mm-hmm. Okay? So everybody's going to shop Amazon right off the bat. So so I'm, I'm going to throw something crazy out, Wallace. I'm going to throw something really crazy out there. But So what you need to hear from us and is, is that it's time to innovate. It's already – the train has already left the station – um, it's commoditized. So the question is, like, if you were to come and ask me, I'm a customer of dry erase boards. Um, my center is. And you said to me, well, what can I do different? I can tell you right off the bat, it, it might not be the right thing. It might already be on the market. But I pass out every time I use one of those markers. I mean, is there a way you can innovate what you're doing by talking to the customers? So I would just 
urge you to sort of think differently and not incrementally over what you're doing. Maybe it's you include something. Maybe you provide some sort of service. Maybe you charge differently. And I know this isn't. This probably won't make sense. But when you look at um, the men's razor business, nobody thought they could compete with with Gillette or or um, Schick. And suddenly you have these other businesses who are sending them to you on a monthly basis. Now I don't think people want a subscription of dry erase boards, but th- th- there's some way to to innovate. It just needs to be thought through. Wallace, thank you so much for your phone call. I think uh, the advice from uh, Celeste and Joe is, is is really good. I think the, you, you do, as an e-commerce company that you've been in business, I think you said for 15 years, with the uh, the customers you've had over those years who you can reach out to, I think the, the solution to your problem lies in those conversations and figuring out what your next step is. It's not easy, but uh, but best of luck. Thank you for your phone call. If you have a question for us, please give us a call at 1-844-942-7866. Let's go to Ed in Ohio. Welcome to Mind Your Business, Ed. Hey, Lauren. How are you? Doing great. How are you? I'm very well, my friend. Um, I'm just I recognize your voice. I should say this is Ed Epley, who has been a guest on this show. Oh. <laughs> Thanks for calling hey, in, Ed. What's hey, on Ed. your mind? <laughs> well, you, you, you got me thinking. Um, First of all, I feel compelled to say I feel sorry for Wallace, but uh, your advice is spot on. And, and uh, uh, the, the, sometimes the best time to sell our business is not when we're ready. Um, but in, in regard to our, uh, your guest today, I'm, I'm just curious about in the, in the concept, the construct of being an entrepreneur, do you think being a veteran causes entrepreneurs to think differently about business relative to their counterparts who have not been in the service of our country? That's a great question. What do you think, Joe? So from understanding the question, you want to know, like, if somebody's a non-veteran and they're an entrepreneur and they see a veteran entrepreneur, do they, do they approach it differently? Is that your question? Well, I, I'm, I, you were talking about the uh, tolerance for risk earlier, but sure. I was just thinking overall, if I'm a, if I'm a, if I'm a veteran, do, do I uh, have a better chance of being successful as an entrepreneur than somebody who's not been in the service or... I'm, I'm just wondering if there's any difference about the way I would approach being in business sure. because I'm a veteran oh, or not. Got it. That's a great question, Ed. So um, while I don't have any data to support, I'm going to give you some anecdotal information and perspective. Ultimately, I think the answer is yes. And the reason why I believe that veterans, and let's just take kind of um, mature veterans and, and leaders come out of there, one, they have leadership experience. So if they can get through the first stage of product market fit, they understand leadership and the good tenets of leadership. They understand team first. They understand uh, humility. It's about the organization, not about uh, the name on the business card. They understand process and procedure, right? So we're part of the, the largest organization in the world, one of them. And once you start to scale your business, you need to put things in, in terms that anybody can understand. Um, they understand managing risk. Um, they understand how to identify potential threats, um, kind of a typical SWOT analysis, Um and uh, really taking care of their people. So those are those are um, different um, values that have been integrated in the military that are taken out um, into the entrepreneurial uh, market. And so I think those are some of the reasons why we've seen um, individuals just really willing to kick down doors. Like nothing gets in their way. They will succeed in some way or another and adapt um, in a very difficult environment. Can I add something to that? Please. So as a third-party observer, so the Wharton SBDC has worked with a couple of uh, Joe's um, entrepreneurs, and we love working with them. And the observation is 
very commitment, you know, they're very committed. So when they come in the door and they work with us, they're going to do exactly what we agreed to do. Um, the follow through is amazing. Um, they also, uh, there's a million, as, Ed, as you know, there's a million barriers that sort of surface and challenges. We, we see them navigate those and, and not sort of, you know, they have the gut to, to actually get through some of those challenges uh, yep. without letting it stop them. So those are some of the traits we've observed so far, and we hope we get to work some more with Joe's, sure. with some of Joe's companies for that reason. I mean, we've experienced hardship, right? Waking up at at 4 o'clock in the morning and and slogging through difficult weather. So to go through business hardship, it's a different type of hard. But when you're accustomed to to go through difficulties, it's it's not a new concept that you say, all right, I've Mm -hmm. had enough of this. So. And it's funny that you called because I was just thinking about a question to ask Joe, uh, which relates to what you do. Uh, Ed works uh, with an organization called Aileron where he facilitates uh, what's called their president's course bringing together a group of entrepreneurs who basically sit in a room and discuss their struggles, what they're going through. And that seems like it would be a particularly appropriate uh, activity for for veterans. I can, I'm, I'm guessing Bunker Labs must have its version of that. Do you? Well, when you go through a cohort, one of the, the values of an organization like Bunker Labs, I didn't even really pinpoint in the beginning, which is they have somebody on their left and right who's been through similar experiences and are going through another experience of starting a business that they can go with together. And we start to hear stories. We bring in um, thought leaders and guest speakers, and none of them ever say, I started a business and everything went great. I had an idea and people just started to buy it, and somebody gave me a million dollars the first time I asked. We talk about the challenges. So when they recognize they're not alone, and then they're surrounded by other people with different skills and different um, um you know, kind of blessings that they have that can help guide them through the process. So um, I think having, being surrounded by other people who are going through different, similar circumstances makes it more palatable to go through that journey. Ed, what's been your experience? Have you worked with many veterans uh, in the president's course and in other situations like that? I've never, I've never really tried to to know or ask, but now that uh, I've listened to your guest, to Joe today, I feel like that's something I'd I'd be inclined to want to know more about because uh, I think what Celeste was talking about intuitively, I would think that some of the resiliency that really differentiates the successful entrepreneur from those who are less successful is, is hypercritical, and, and that's already been tested and brought out in a lot of those vets. Well, thank you for your call, Ed. We appreciate it. I happen to know you live in Columbus, and Joe was just saying that there's a Bunker Labs in Columbus. You might want to check them out. Yeah, um, thanks, Ed. Thanks. Bye-bye. Um, well, we only have a few minutes left. Is there uh, is there another example of a uh, a business that you could give us, Joe? Uh, yeah, maybe? sure. So um, I had uh, I met a gentleman, Vietnam veteran, probably about four or five months ago, who came out to one of our events, and he said, honestly, I hadn't really been connected to the veteran community in years, and we know what the, the how difficult talk about difficult transition, what it was like for Vietnam veterans, where. Um, it wasn't just changing jobs. They were frowned upon and, and um, really, you know, in many ways um, looked down upon. And so he came out and just felt inspired and loved what we were doing. And he'd started, you know, 15, 17 different companies over the course of his life and was semi-retired. And there was a brand called Horn and Hard Art that had gone out of business in the early 80s that um, he 
thought like, man, it just was a shame. We had amazing coffee and he's a coffee connoisseur. Maybe I can bring that back. And he was talking about it all the time. And finally his wife is like, well, either shut up or get going. <laughs> and and he's like, all right, well, I guess I got to get going um, because I can't shut up about it. And he bought the rights and trademark to the brand, raised some capital, tried more than 200 different coffee. After looking at their invoices to say, hey, where did they import their beans from? Managed to nail the coffee flavor and has developed the most amazing coffee. I brought it home, and I can't stop thinking about it. I need to get the next Keurig. So he sells it online. He has an online model, hornandhardart.com. He's a, he's a professional. So he's going to be part of our next co- uh, cohort. Um, and um, we're excited to have Alan Mazzone, Vietnam veteran, and, and he feels really rejuvenated and connected to the veteran community again, which is great. That's a great story. What, what's... Uh what has been most successful for him in terms of building the business? What's the, the what? How is he selling the coffee? What's the direction he's going in? Sure, I mean he looks at online. Like he realized online is where it's at. Like he knows storefront is difficult and expensive. Um, Lots you, of competition. That's right. Yeah, when you go to his website, it really is a professional website. Mm-hmm. He's collecting information. He provides incentives. He incentivizes people to go put it on social. So he's a professional. Um, and when you go to hornhardart.com. Um, you'll see that that he's collecting data and encouraging people to buy and developing a different brand and hitting uh, like a bit higher up in the market. That that particular company sort of amazes me because of the competition. We know what it's like out there. And so it would be really interesting to hear a little bit more about how did he, like, you know, garner the interest and the taste for what he does and like do it quickly. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time here, but I think we've uh, hit on our uh, our next uh, show with you, Joe. <laughs> will, will you bring him back next time? I would definitely bring Al back. He, he's he's a great guy. I love to bring him here. We would we would love to yes. dive into this. I can see just looking at Celeste, she feels the same way. Joe Whitty, thank you so much for joining thank us you. today. Thank if you. you want to know more about Joe, go to uh, bunkerlabsphl.com. You can also find him on Twitter at Whitty W I T T E Joe. Celeste, we're out of time. Great having you here having you too it was a great conversation you've been listening to mind your business on uh sirius xm 111 sponsored by wharton until next time thank you for more insight from business radio please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu